Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Shine. All right, so last week we saw Paul, you remember this, being transported uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea in the middle of the night. And so I want you to picture Paul riding on horseback, surrounded by 470 Roman soldiers. That's right. So 200 infantrymen, 200 spearmen, and 70 cavalry are encircling Paul in the middle of the night, and they're making their way to Caesarea. Why were they protecting Paul? They were protecting Paul because there was 40 assassins, over 40 assassins, that were, uh, 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 had made a decision to murder him and take him out. And so Claudius, the, the tribune, is like, no way, that's happening on my watch. He's a Roman citizen. He has not been condemned. We're going to protect him. And off they go to Caesarea. They arrive safely. When Paul gets to Caesarea, he's escorted to the palatial palace that Herod the Great had built on the Mediterranean Sea, which is now the home of a man named Felix, the governor of Judea. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul had already appeared before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem with the Roman tribune Claudius presiding. Now, different chapter, different setting, Paul, once again, is going to appear before the Sanhedrin, but a smaller segment of the Sanhedrin with the Roman governor, Felix, presiding. Who was Felix? Well, Felix served as governor of Judea from A.D. 52 to around A.D. 59. And so there on your screen, you see some really cool ancient coins that were discovered from this time period, actually issued by Governor Felix in A.D. 54. Uh, Thank you, coinweek.com, for those pictures. And so as a child, Felix was a Roman slave, but... Ever heard the, the, the saying, we get by with a little help from our friends? Well, Felix got by with a little help from his brother, Pallas, because Pallas knew, knew Claudius, the emperor, and he pulled some strings, and the next thing you know, Felix, who formerly was a slave, a Roman slave, now he's the Roman governor. Talk about you know, climbing the corporate ladder. But here's the problem. Felix was a brutal dictator, and he massacred thousands of Jews. The Roman historian Tacitus said, and I quote, Felix was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. And so this is now the tyrant that the apostle Paul is standing before to give an account for his actions. And so today we're picking up in chapter 24 and verse one. And so right now, if you're looking at A Bible, Acts 24, verse 1, from your living room, just say amen. Here we go. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, so a small contingent from the Sanhedrin, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case before Paul. And so after his accusers arrived from uh, Jerusalem, it was time for Paul to have his day in court. All right, so who were his accusers? As you saw in verse 1, Ananias, the current high priest. Uh, Some elders from the Sanhedrin and a silver-tongued orator or prosecuting attorney by the name of 
Tertullus, a slick lawyer. And so why a slick lawyer? Why was he called in? Because when a plaintiff doesn't have a solid case, they'll often go out and find the best attorney in order to prop up that case. And so that's what Ananias uh, apparently is doing here by securing the services of Tertullus. All right, let's pick it up now in verse two. It says in Acts 24, verse two, that when he, Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, okay, saying now to Governor Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. It's like, where's the toilet? I'm going to throw up, right? And so what, what's going on here? Well, in an attempt to win over the governor, Tertullus uses his silver tongue and he pours out this plethora of nauseating flattery. And, and Felix saw right through it. He was not going to have any part of it. He either rolled his eyes or he sighed or maybe he looked at his watch because in verse 4, Tertullus gets right to the point. Look at verse 4 now. Tertullus continues, he says, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, we have found this man a plague. You know, why don't you tell us how you really, uh, really feel, Tertullus? A plague. One who stirs up riots. All right, everybody look up at your screen right, right now at me. Those of you who've been with us since Acts chapter 9, and you've heard the whole story of the Apostle Paul. Has he ever once, as we followed Paul all across the Roman Empire, has he ever once stirred up a riot among the Jews or the Romans? The answer is no. This guy's lying through his teeth. So this guy's a plague, Tertullus tells Felix, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a term of derision. Verse six, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Yeah, you not only seized him, Tertullus, but you tried to beat Paul half to death. Another lie. Verse eight, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from Paul about everything of which we accuse him. Verse nine, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so Tertullus says, in essence, to the governor, Governor, we have found this man to be a ringleader of a fringe group called the Nazarenes. He's gone across the Roman Empire, and he's disturbing the peace. Now, that accusation would have gotten Felix's attention, because anybody in the Roman Empire at that time who dared to uh, disrupt or disturb the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, would have to be firmly dealt with if the charges could be proven. But Paul, right now, is gonna tell Felix they can't prove any of this. Let's pick it up in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, he replied, well, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I, I like that about Paul. He didn't lay on the flattery, he just, Paid him a compliment, it's getting right to it. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days 
since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, right? 12 days is plenty of time for anybody to gather evidence against me. Verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And so Paul, in essence, said, Governor, I don't, um, they don't have a leg to stand on. You know, I didn't cause any riots. I was the victim of a riot. They cannot prove any of this. But governor, I want you to know something. I am guilty of this. Look at verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to, now say the next two words in your living room, the way. According to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. The law and the prophets was simply a way to say the Old Testament in our language. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, at least the Pharisees among them, because remember the Sadducees did not, which these men accept that there will be a resurrection, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came, look at this, to bring alms to my nation. I didn't go to Jerusalem to start a riot. I went on a humanitarian effort to bring money to the poor saints in Jerusalem to help them in a time of famine. So I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, verse 18. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But look, look at this. Some Jews from Asia, and Paul's looking around the courtroom right now. You know, where are they? But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? But they're not here. Verse 20. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. All right, so what's going on here in our Bibles? What's going on is that Paul is in a very tough situation. And how did he respond when he was in a tough situation? Here it is. Paul let his light shine. How did he let his light shine? He let his light shine by telling Felix about the way, the way. Look again in verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. You see, Paul was not ashamed to be a follower of the way. And if you've been with us, you know that the way is one of the ways that they described Christianity in the first century AD. And so it's based on the words of Jesus. When Jesus said, and some of you who know this verse by heart, you can say it out loud in your living room. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, says Jesus in John 14, 6. And so Paul, get the, 
Get the sense of what's going on here. Paul is telling Felix, I worship the God of our fathers, the Jews' fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the way, according to the Christian faith. And Paul says, I believe everything in the law and in the prophets. I believe the entire Old Testament, you know, um, not like the Sadducees over there. And I believe in the resurrection now, now look at this. We all need some hope in difficult times, right? Look at verse 15. He says, and having a hope in God, which these th uh, men themselves accept that there will be a, what's the word there? A resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Ladies and gentlemen, the coming resurrection is the sure hope of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Look at what Job said in the Old Testament. I love this verse. Job, and by the way, you think you're going through a hard time? Read the first few chapters of the book of Job. It'll put everything in perspective, all right? But nonetheless, Job said this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God. He didn't say as a little spirit floating around in a haze on a cloud with a halo, I will, you know, no. He said, in my flesh, which God is gonna raise from the dead, I will see my redeemer. Look at what Paul wrote in the New Testament. He said, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die. Have you noticed it? I've said it a million times. 10 out of 10 people on this planet don't make it off the planet alive. They have to die first. In Adam all die. Bad news, but here's the good news. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so everybody check this out. The scriptures very carefully teach so there's no ambiguity that there will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the just and there will be a resurrection of the unjust. And so the just, who are the just? Those who tried really hard to be good? No, listen. The just are those who know they're not good that they're sinners in need of a savior, they turn to Jesus Christ who paid for their sins on the cross and rose again, and they by faith receive Jesus as their savior, having their sins forgiven. They are called the just. The unjust are those who reject Christ, reject his payment, and this makes me shudder, they die in their sins. They die unforgiven. You see, the just are gonna to go to the judgment seat of Christ, but the unjust... They're gonna to go to the great white throne judgment. The just are gonna enter the kingdom age in resurrected, immortal, eternal bodies. Their flesh, by God's power, raised from the dead. The unjust, they're gonna be raised too in bodies, but they're gonna be cast into the lake of fire. They're absolutely, write it down, be prepared. Don't, you see, right now, somebody told you. So now you're responsible. There's gonna be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. And so Paul 
says to Felix at the end of verse 21, it is with, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. All right, let's see how Felix responds. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and so he's heard about Christianity. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, was never done in a corner. It was spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. And so Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them, the Sanhedrin, off, saying, well, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. All right, so because of the lack of evidence against Paul, Felix should have let him go. That would have been the right thing to do. But see, Felix wasn't concerned about the right thing to do. He was just concerned about the politically correct thing to do. And the politically correct thing to do was to appease the Jewish authorities who represented hundreds of thousands of Jews in his province. And so he's like, he lies to him. Oh, I'm going to have Lysia come, uh, the, the tribune, and, and, and talk to him first. He wasn't going to do that. There's no evidence of that in Scripture at all. He's just trying to say to Tertullus and the Sanhedrin, all right, guys, see you later. Go back to Jerusalem, but I will keep him in custody. And so he does a favor to the Sanhedrin by keeping Paul in custody. He tells the centurion, hey, centurion, keep him in custody, but give him some freedom, and then be sure to let his friends visit him. Now, I like this. Felix, I guess he wakes up on the right side of the bed. He's feeling a little nice now. He says, all right, so you know, keep him in this big palatial palace here that Herod the Great had built on the Mediterranean Sea. Let him have some freedom and let his friends come and, and see him. And so no doubt Luke came to Paul at the governor's praetorium there at the palatial palace. Luke came in order to get some more information for a book that Luke was writing called the Acts of the Apostles. No doubt Philip and his four unmarried daughters, they came to visit Paul because they lived just down the street there in Caesarea. And so there's Paul, he's under guard, he has some freedom, so not so bad, but look at verse 24 now. And so after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, or was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. Now, I got to stop you right there. Please, everybody, look at me. Felix tells the guard, all right, guard. Um, one day he gets up and says, guard, go get Paul. My wife, Drusilla, and I, we want to hear him. And so the apostle comes and appears before Felix and Drusilla. All right, so who was Drusilla? Man, this was a young Jewish girl, a young lady. And man, does she have a notorious family tree. Her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Remember him in the Bible? The guy who actually tried to uh, take out Jesus by killing all the little boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem. You remember the Christmas story? That's Herod the Great. That's Drusilla's great-grandpa. Her uncle was Herod Antipas, the guy who murdered John the Baptist, served up his head on a platter. Her dad was Herod Agrippa I, the guy who murdered the apostle James, the brother of John. And so Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, with relatives like that, you know, who needs enemies? And so Drusilla, 
when she was about 15 years old, she married a guy named Azizus, who was the king of Ameza. You know, these, 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 these names are hard to pronounce for an American like me. We'll just call him, you know, King Aziz, you know, excellent he, Ali Ababa or whatever. And then so she's 15. She marries this guy, King Aziz. He's over in Syria somewhere. But Felix sees her. And history says that she's beautiful. And so he decides, I want her as my wife. And so he sends a necromancer and he goes and persuades this young girl to leave her husband and come be Felix's third wife. And so right now in our Bibles, Acts 24, Drusilla is about 19 or 20 years old. And Paul is brought in, put yourselves in his sandals. He's brought in and he's standing before this brutal dictator and this, this young woman who, um, you know, doesn't have the best past. And he, what's he going to talk about? What's Paul going to talk about? Well, what do you guys think Paul's going to talk about? Look at verse 24. And so in Acts 24, verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak, look at this, about faith, I love it, in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned, Paul reasoned with this couple about righteousness and self-control and what? The coming judgment. All right, so stop right there. Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about righteousness, self-control, coming judgment, and faith in Jesus Christ. Why did he talk to them about righteousness? Here's why. Because God demands righteousness from everybody. That's why. Why did he talk about self-control? Because God demands self-control from everybody. Why did he talk about coming judgment? Because ladies and gentlemen, if you and I are not righteous, and if you and I do not display self-control, one day we will be judged. All right, so was Felix righteous? No. He was a brutal dictator. Was Drusilla righteous? No. She allowed Felix to lure her away from her first husband. Did Felix um, exhibit self-control? No. One day he looks over at this beautiful young lady, and he goes to his servant, I want her. Go get her. Oh, Felix, she's married. I don't care. I said, go get her. He didn't display self-control at all. Did Drusilla uh, display self-control? No. She one day is living uh, there in Syria somewhere with her husband, King Aziz, and she says, honey, King Aziz, you know, Felix wants me down in Caesarea. And he's got this big, beautiful palatial palace. See you later, hubby. And she's gone. Okay, so what does all this mean? What this means is that this couple, Felix and Drusilla, would one day have to face the coming judgment of God. By the way, have you noticed by now that Paul's message to Felix and Drusilla was not a motivational talk? He didn't walk into the room and say, all right, Felix and Drusilla, let me give you five steps to a better you. Hey, let me give you 10 keys to successful living. No, that's not what Paul did. Paul gave them a biblical message that warned of coming judgment. We need more of that kind of preaching, by the way, in the world today. 
And by the way, I am so glad that Paul did not just talk to this couple about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. He also, in verse 24, talked to them about faith in Jesus Christ. And so I love this because, ladies and gentlemen, none of us are righteous. No, not one. Don't make the mistake of looking at the Bible and reading the Bible and putting yourself up here and looking down your self-righteous nose at the characters of the Bible and say, well, Drusilla, she's such a sinner. I would never do that. Well, guess what? You and I are sinners too. None of us are righteous. No, not one. None of us have displayed self-control. All of us deserve judgment. But are you ready for some good news? Here's the good news. Christ came. And he was judged in your place and in my place, taking our sins in his body on the tree, drinking to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God against our sin, being judged. And he died. And the third day he rose again. And if, and it's a big if, if by faith we'll turn from our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, then he will absolutely forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call love. Paul shone his light brightly by talking about the love of Jesus Christ with Felix and Drusilla. Jesus Christ said this in Matthew 5, 14 and 16. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so, church family, man, as Christians, we're the light of the world. But where does our light come from? Well, once again, Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so I want you and I to think about this as I try to illustrate it in terms of the sun and the moon. All right, so the sun gives light to the earth during the day and the moon gives light to the earth during the night. Here's a question I have for you. You can answer out loud in your living room if you want. Does the moon have any light of its own? The answer, of course, is no. The only reason the moon gives any light is because it's reflecting the light of the sun. And so in the same way, Jesus is like the sun, and you and I are like the moon. And like the moon, well, we don't have any light of our own. But when we allow the light of the world to shine on us, look at that. We reflect his light to others at night, in a dark time, when people are struggling, when people are down, when people are lacking hope, when people are questioning God. You and I, Christian, 
have that opportunity to reflect the light of Jesus to them. The question is, are you reflecting the light of Jesus to others or have you allowed the world to block his light from reaching you? You see, the moon will always reflect the light of the sun unless there's a lunar eclipse. A lunar eclipse occurs when the world comes between the sun and the moon, blocking the sunlight from reflecting off the moon. And so what's the moral of the story? What am I trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. If we allow the world, Christian, to come between us and the S-O-N, we will fail to reflect his light to a world that's living in darkness, to a world that's struggling, to a world that's having hard, a hard time. Right now, our world's in a difficult situation. As everybody knows, COVID-19, the coronavirus, well, there's 312,000 cases worldwide. This is as of 8 a.m. this morning. I know the numbers change every hour. There's been 13,407 deaths. And thankfully, 93,790 people are recovering. But the problem is it's still spreading in many places in the world. And so this is the time right here, right now. This is why I believe you're joining uh, Calvary PSL in your living room. You're listening to this um, Bible message because it's time right here, right now that Christians like you and me more than ever let our light shine to people. But sadly, here's what's happened. Some Christians have allowed a spiritual lunar eclipse to occur in their lives and they're allowing certain things to block the light of Christ from reflecting off of them. All right, so what blocks the light of Christ from reflecting off a person? Things like fear, arrogance, division, selfishness. So concerning fear, here's, here's what's happening. Some people are, are spreading fear on social media, on Facebook, the internet, giving into paranoia, giving into mistrust of the government. That's a mistake. Other people are being very arrogant. You know, they're not following the CDC guidelines. And that, that's proven by the pictures that all of us saw last week of all those people lined up on beaches, thousands of them during spring break or all the people out in the street partying on, on St. Patrick's Day. And so many young people, I'm not just talking about the young people, I'm kind of talking about everybody here, but especially the young, a lot of young people, they're having this attitude, well, I'm invincible, forget the CDC, I'll never get it. Here's the question, what if you do? What if you do get it? And worse, what if you pass it on to an elderly person? And so what blocks the light of Jesus Christ from reflecting off of us in difficult and dark times? Well, what, what blocks it is fear, what blocks it is arrogance, and what blocks it is division, division. You see, some people have chosen to give, in, to give in to partisan politics at this time, and they're pointing their fingers across the aisle, blaming the other party for what's going on. It's a mistake. Concerning selfishness, some people have gone to stores and they've stockpiled way more than they'll ever need, not leaving enough for others or the elderly community. And so all these things and so many more have blocked the light of Jesus Christ from reflecting off the lives of some 
people. But we need to be different, church family. So what are we called to do? We're, again, called to shine. We're called to shine. And so when we get into the presence of the S-O-N, how do you do that? By meditating on his word, by getting into prayer, by getting into worship, by getting into some solitude, by, by fasting if you're medically able. As we get into the light of the S-O-N, here's what happens. His light reflects off of us and we become like a big, bright, and beautiful moon. That's what people need in hard times. They need us to shine. And so during the last 2,000 years, uh, in case you haven't read history in a while, Christians have been known to shine brightly for the Lord during times of the outbreak of various plagues. And I had all this stuff prepared for you today about all the plagues and I scratched it all because I only have so much time. But let me just say that the Christians over the last 2,000 years have let their light shine in such a way that many times throughout church history, it was after various plagues that the spread of Christianity was rapid. And so when the bubonic plague, the bubonic plague had a, Mortality rate of 60 to 90% at some points in the 16th century um, in Europe. So the bubonic plague. When that came to Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther was told, flee, get out of here, go be safe. But instead of that, Martin Luther remained in town and he cared for sick people. This guy even opened up his home as a temporary hospital where he could pray for and comfort and encourage those who had the plague. Now, I'm not saying for anybody to open up your home for sick people. What I'm saying is that before the days of modern healthcare, Martin Luther stepped up in the context of his generation. And as a Christian, he did what was needed in the context of his culture. He later wrote about the Christian's response to the plague. And he wrote, number one, you should sanitize your home. Number two, you should obey quarantine mandates. And number three, you should take all necessary steps to stop the spread. That sounds pretty familiar. So Martin Luther let his light shine, and so should we. So instead of giving in to fear and arrogance and division and selfishness, Here's what we need to do. We need to trust the Lord. We need to be humble. We need to be united. And finally, we need to be selfless. Now, really focus in here. We need to trust the Lord. We talk about it so much, right? Well, now's the time. The rubber hits the road. Do you, do I really trust the Lord during this time? The scripture says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And so we shouldn't be spreading fear right now. We should be spreading hope. We should be encouraging people to trust the Lord. He can be trusted. Now, here's what's going to happen as we talk to people either online or emails or from 10 feet apart, I hope, um, they're gonna ask questions like, well, why would God allow something like this to happen? Well, he here's what you say. It's not God's fault, it's our fault. Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, everything fell. We live in a, have you noticed this? A fallen world. Here's the good news. God's in the process of redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. And then look him in the eye and ask him, 
Have you allowed Jesus to redeem you? You see, we do as Christians have answers in difficult times. And so we need to trust the Lord and we need to be humble. Don't be invincible. Don't stick your chest out. Don't ignore the CDC guidelines. Don't think, you know, you're all that. Be humble. Follow the medical experts' advice. You and I, at least most of us, are not medical experts. We need to follow their advice. So avoid groups of over 10 people. Just do it. Practice social distancing. Wash your hands often. <laughs> Have you heard this? Cover your cough and your elbow. Don't touch your face. Disinfect surfaces. And my goodness, if you feel ill, please stay at home. And if you're an older person, please stay at home until all this passes. Be humble. And then finally, be unified. Don't give in to partisan politics. Don't go on Facebook or social media and slam people of another political persuasion. Hey, this virus doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or independent. It doesn't care. All it wants to do is to get into your body and use your cells as a host. And so here's an idea. Instead of turning on each other, why don't we all turn on the virus? Why don't we all humble ourselves and follow the CDC guidelines to the T and then by prayer and by obedience, we'll see good results in the future. Selflessness, I wanna encourage you about that. During this time, how do we reflect the light of Christ? We become, we choose to be selfless. That means we stop thinking about ourselves, we start thinking about others. And so I wanna encourage you, think about others. Think about your children. I loved what Ethan said our children's ministry director about, man, we've got stuff up on the Calvary Kids Facebook page that moms and dads will help you, no matter what age your kid is, talk to them about the coronavirus on their level so they don't have to be afraid. That's part of being selfless. And check in on an elderly neighbor, see how they're doing, see if they need any help, see if they need you to go to the grocery store. Make some phone calls to some friends. And please listen to this, help Feed those people in our area who need some food. Isn't that what Christians do in times like this? Isn't that what Christians are supposed to always be doing? And so some local places that you can go and volunteer at on your screen, Graceway Village, the Boys and Girls Club, and the Treasure Coast Food Bank. And so I love all three of these organizations. They're distributing meals right now to those people on the Treasure Coast who are in need. They're doing a great job. And so if you're not comfortable going and volunteering, um, we totally understand. It's drive-through, by the way, drive-through meals. And so they're following the CDC guidelines. But if you're not comfortable going and volunteering, you can make a donation. You can make a donation to Graceway Village. You can make a donation to the Treasure Coast Food Bank and help them continue to provide meals. And so we're gonna leave that up on the screen here for just a second. Maybe you wanna grab your phone, take a quick picture, but those are the three organizations that we're partnering with in order to be a light during this dark time. By the way, did you know, listen to this, a $50 donation to the Treasure Coast Food Bank can provide healthy meals for a family of four for one week. That's awesome. 50 bucks will feed a family for one week. And so whether you go or whether you make a donation, both are great ways for us to shine. All right, so Paul, he let his light shine. Let's see how Felix responded and we'll wrap it up. 
verse 25. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, look at this, Felix was alarmed. And he said, I'm gonna bow my head and close my eyes and receive Jesus Christ as my savior right now. No. He said, as a lot of people say, go away. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul so that, so he sent him for, uh, he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27, when two years, can you guys believe this? Two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so Felix, here's the gospel from the apostle Paul. He comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and his response was go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. In other words, Felix procrastinated. Felix put off the gospel. And sadly, the scriptures give no indication that either Felix or Drusilla ever came to Jesus Christ, ever became Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're out there and you've never turned from your sins and turned to Jesus Christ and received him as your savior and Lord, don't be like Felix. Don't procrastinate, don't delay. It really is the most important decision that you'll ever make.